Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Cara Bentley and this is the show where we delve into a well-known Christian's life and testimony. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to the one and only Anne Widdicombe. Anne may have strong views on many things. You may find her extremely disagreeable, but I think you'll find that she's also very self-deprecating, doesn't take herself too seriously and is passionate about whatever she turns her hand to. It's worth saying we spoke way before the general election this week, so that's why that doesn't come up much. But she does comment on free speech, strictly come dancing, coming out of retirement to join the Brexit party and the naughtiest thing she ever did at school. And thank you so much for joining us. You've done a plethora of things throughout your life. Can you take us back to the beginning? Where were you born and what were your parents like? I was born in Bath, but by the time I was three, we'd gone to Portsmouth. By the time I was five, we'd gone to Singapore uh, because I was with an admiralty family. So we moved around every two to three years. And in fact, you say I've done many things. When I left Parliament... I think everybody was expecting me just to carry on as though I was still a member of Parliament and sort of do the sorts of things I would have done then. Uh, But I knew that that chapter had gone and that I could open up to things that were completely different. Uh, And the reason, I think, goes back to my childhood where one day I would be living in a house that I'd been in for two or three years, having friends I'd known that long, going to a particular school, belonging to the local brownie pack. And the very next day, I mean, no comfy phase transition, no preparatory visits, very next day in a different part of the country or on my way to a different part of the globe, uh, preparing to get used to a new house, a new school, a new brownie pack, and to make friends again from scratch. And I think the subconscious lesson of that childhood is when something's gone, it's gone. Do you think that shaped you? Did it shape your character? Did it make you, say, more bold? Or did it do the opposite and make you shy? I think it made me, oh, it certainly didn't make me shy. It made me very flexible, I think, um, because we did change every two to three years. Um, And as I say, it it sent me the subconscious message that I didn't realise at the time, um, that you've always got to be in the present and the future. The, The past is just gone. I mean, yesterday's friends and house and school that were all so vivid, vivid yesterday gone mm. were your parents christian um yes uh my um uh brother was um a vicar uh and uh i grew up in an anglican home uh my parents were anglicans uh but my mother's father had been a roman catholic uh and uh, that's obviously where i ended up eventually but my upbringing was anglican and indeed was mainly because of the influence of my brother, Evangelical Anglican. And what were your among your earliest memories of church? Oh, um, my earliest memories of church are when we arrived in Singapore, because uh, I think until then I hadn't been taken to church because small children are a nuisance. I think, I can't really remember, but what I can remember uh, is the first church and Sunday school that I settled into, um, uh, which was the uh, naval base uh, chapel in Singapore and uh, there used to be a service and in the middle of the service the children would go out to Sunday school and then we'd come back. Uh, So that is certainly my 
my first active memory of church. When you were moving around all these different schools, what type of student were you? Oh, um, I was pretty ambitious academically, so I, I liked coming first. Uh, so from that point of view, uh, I just reapplied myself wherever I went. Obviously, some schools I went to were better than others. But when I, when time came for secondary education, my parents did what most forces parents do. They sent me to boarding school so that I had a completely stable secondary education. And it was a Catholic convent that they sent me to. What impression of God did your Catholic convent school leave you with? Um, I don't know that it left me with any different impression from uh, how my parents have brought me up. Because although in those days, and it's, it's hard to believe now, there was real, I wouldn't call it enmity, uh, but there was real distrust between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism, and really quite strongly so. Uh, for example, at that time, Catholics still weren't allowed to go to uh, Anglican services or Protestant services uh, in general. Uh, if you wanted to go to a funeral, you had to ask the priest for permission to go to a, a funeral in a, in a Protestant church. Um, so it was still that strict at that time. Uh, and there was a huge divide between the two. But despite that, of course, you know, we had the same Holy Writ, the same Creed, the same Lord's Prayer. Uh, and although obviously there are add-ons to Catholicism that, that there aren't uh, in Protestantism, uh, it was essentially it was the same. I was learning exactly the same Holy Writ. Did your parents feel conflicted about sending you to a Catholic school? I think as they my were parents were conflicted at all. They were extremely practical. It was the um, the best school in Bath as far as they were concerned. Um, that also offered a boarding facility because my first year I was still a day girl because we were still living locally. But then my father was posted to Whitehall. And at that point, I became uh, a boarder. So the transition was very, very smooth. Uh, and that's what they were looking for. They were also looking for um, a disciplined school. They wanted me to have a, a, a disciplined education. And the convent at that point was certainly, you know, probably the strictest school in all Bath. Did you ever misbehave? Oh, frequently. Um, and uh, particularly uh, on one occasion, uh, some of us in the third form dormitory um, dressed up as ghosts in white sheets uh, on St. Cecilia's night. And we went through the school and we went down and played music uh, in honour of St. Cecilia, who is patron saint of music. Uh, and then we went back up again, but on our way back we were caught. And the nun who caught us just jumped about six feet because these ghostly figures suddenly appeared. Do you remember your punishment? Yes. Um, we used to uh, be able to spend every third Saturday... Uh, with either a relative or, or um, uh, an approved adult. Uh, and we could go out all day on Saturday and not come back till about six o'clock at night in time for rosary. Uh, and I, my third Saturday was taken away from me. So Dear I had me, no third um... Saturday. <laughs> Did you have strong views on things as a child? Yes, I think one of the inevitable results of being in a minority um, religion at school uh, was that I learnt to defend what I believed against a majority very early on, very early on. So, and that became second nature. So I've never really worried about being unpopular. When would you say you developed your own personal faith in God? Oh, I think um, I always had it. I mean, I know that the evangelical position is, you know, there is a given moment of conversion. Um, but I always think that um, 
Christianity, obviously it can and it does happen that way to St. Paul. Uh, but uh, it can also be something that develops. You know, you have a basic belief which is given to you as a child and you build on it and you develop it. Uh, so I don't think there is one particular moment that I can point to. There was a moment when I was eight and my brother took me to um, a, a big Christian meeting in Tunbridge Wells. Uh, and of course, at the end, you know, you, you go up. Uh, and he asked me if I wanted to give my heart to Jesus. Well, I wasn't going to say no, was I? Uh, so I said yes, very obediently. Um, and he would say that that was when I became a Christian, but I don't. I, I think it is more subtle than that, far mm. more subtle than that. And the influences as well as your brother, were they anyone outside of family? Well, the entire school, of course. You know, I mean, as I always recall, and it rather shocks the, the, the younger generation now, uh, first thing we did in the morning when we got up was pray. We prayed before we got out of bed. I mean, the wake-up call at Bath Convent was a nun coming into the dormitory and saying, Great St. Joseph! And we all had to say, pray for us. And until we'd all said, pray for us, she wouldn't go away. She just stood there saying, Great St. Joseph. So we used to pray before we got out of bed in the morning. Um, we would then pray at assembly. We would then pray at lunchtime when we had the Angelus. Uh, we would then pray in the evening before we went to bed. Uh, so, I mean, it was constant. It was absolutely constant. And everywhere you went, there were crucifixes and, and reminders of, of what life was about. But it wasn't until much later when you were an MP that you actually converted to Catholicism. Yes, Why I, mean, was I, that? I left school a, a, a convinced Anglican. I mean, a really convinced Anglican. I thought that Catholicism was um, a bit superstitious. Um, I didn't agree with many of its teachings. I mean, by then, of course, by the time I was 18, I mean, I, I could reason about things like, you know, transubstantiation, and invocation of the saints, etc. Absolutely didn't agree with Catholicism. There's no doubt about that. You know, after six years at Bath Convent, I was still very, very strongly an Anglican. Uh, then, many years later, I became uh, an agnostic. And everybody says to me, what brought that on? And the answer's nothing. It was a slow erosion of faith, as the return to Christianity was the slow erosion of unbelief. And it was slow on, but there was no Damascene conversion either way. It was just very slow. Uh, and when I came back, I think the big mistake I made was because I watched uh, the church from afar during that period. And I had been very struck by the fact that the Anglicans always preferred compromise over creed, always uh, and seemed to go with anything that was fashionable. The Pope, on the other hand, took the view that um, there was right and there was wrong, and they were not determined by popularity, you know, that Christ didn't put uh, the Sermon on the Mount to the vote. You know, we, that wasn't what determined it. I had much more respect for the second position. I was beginning to understand a lot more about the teachings of Catholicism, and... Uh, I think my big mistake was that when I came back from agnosticism, I didn't say, right, that's it, you know, I'm going to come back as a Catholic. I just drifted back into what I already knew, mm. which was the Anglican church. What did your evangelical brother say when you went to a Catholic church? He was delighted. He came and he uh, helped at the ceremony of reception. He was actually there in his robes uh, on the altar. Uh, helping uh, with the ceremony of reception because he also was thoroughly fed up with the Anglican church. But he had nowhere to go because he did not accept Catholic teaching. So he had absolutely nowhere to go. 
But I did have somewhere to go and he was delighted. Did other aspects of your theology change after you joined the Catholic Church? No. Um, it has to join before for a very simple reason that when you are received into, into the Catholic Church, you have to say at the point of reception, clearly and on your own, you can't just sort of mutter in a crowd, you've got to say clearly and on your own, I believe all the church teaches to be revealed truth. Now, unless you're prepared to commit a pretty major act of perjury at the point of reception, you've got to have reconciled yourself to the um, issues of faith before you are received. So uh, it didn't happen afterwards. It happened in that period when I'd left the Anglican Church uh, in deep disgust. Um, everybody seems to think I became a Catholic overnight. I didn't. It was actually, I left the Anglican Church in November when they decided to ordain women priests and I joined the Catholic Church in April. What do you believe about how someone gets to heaven? Well, you get to heaven through Christ. I mean, I would have thought that was perfectly obvious through the sacrifice at Calvary. I don't know any other way of getting there. In terms of the Church of England at that time being wishy-washy and things, as you say, some would say the Catholic Church is a bit more like that now that some would say this pope is a bit more liberal than previous ones we've got talk of married priests coming in maybe women priests where do you think the catholic tell church me are? one thing that he's changed well some would say that he's contemplating more than previous popes would tell me one thing that he's changed okay. and the answer is you can't because he hasn't um what this pope does very very successfully is pr so he will sound as if he's about to do something new, but in fact, he upholds and always has when he's actually, I wouldn't use the word cornered, but when he's really pressed, he will always uphold traditional church teaching. Now, I don't have a problem with married priests, but certainly the Pope hasn't suggested for one moment that you know the general prohibition is going to be um, uh, removed. But, of course, there is an enormous distinction, huge distinction between a rule and a doctrine. Now, a doctrine is immovable. It stays the same forever. A rule can always be changed. And the fact is, for the first 1,100 years of our history, we had married priests. We wouldn't have much of a problem with them. St. Peter had a mother-in-law. Uh, so, you know, there were married priests. Um, but the church then decided um, to require celibacy uh, among the priesthood. It could, tomorrow morning, decide that's not what it wants. Uh, but... What has actually happened, I think, is something much more subtle. And it came out of the Anglican crisis mm. because something like 348 priests left uh, the Anglican church at the time. Uh, not all of them uh, went to Rome, uh, but the vast majority did. And suddenly Rome had on its hands this great influx of married priests. Uh, now, um, the rule always was, yes, you know, if you were already married and um, you were uh, an Anglican priest and you then became ordained in the Catholic Church, the rule was always fine. You know, that's OK. Um, but you can't be a parish priest. You have to be in the hospitals, the prisons, the armed services. You have to be a chaplain. That was the rule. Married priests in the, in, the, in the parishes now. And it's been very gradual and therefore accepted because, you know, I think there was a time when Catholics would have reacted against that and said, well, you can't do that. But what it has done, of course, is to cause um, an imbalance because a Catholic priest who wants to marry can't, period, end of. You leave the priesthood if you want to marry. And yet, over in the next parish can be a married Anglican priest. And I'm not sure that 
I'm not a married Anglican priest, I'm an ex-Anglican, a married Catholic priest. And I'm not sure that that distinction is going to be preserved forever. It's, it's, it's a very awkward one for the church. If they hadn't come over in those sorts of numbers, it wouldn't really matter. It would just be, you know, one or two came every year. Uh, suddenly hundreds. So I think it's evolution rather than revolution. I don't think Pope Francis is interested in revolution. What he has said is that in um, areas where, uh, and really he's talked about the Amazon, you know, he hasn't talked about sort of London or Chelsea or something, uh, but, but that in areas where there are too few vocations and we have a shortage of priests, maybe the local bishop should consider. And that's as far as he's gone. He's gone no further than that. And I think it will evolve that way, very slowly. It will evolve that way. But you're settled in the Catholic Church for now, unless it's something am. dramatic. Oh, there won't be anything dramatic. Um, I've, I've settled in the Catholic Church. Have you found a new church since you retired? Well, uh, since you you, you mean a new place retired. of worship. You yes. don't mean a new church. I'm still a Catholic. A, yeah. yeah, a new <laughs> parish. Yes. Um, when I first retired, I went to live on Dartmoor. That's where I live, on Dartmoor. When I first retired, I went to Buckfast Abbey um, because it was the nearest one I could think of. But then... Um, several people wrote to me and said, oh, we've, we've got a wonderful little Catholic church in Buffy Tracy. Why don't you come here? And, and that is, in fact, where I've settled. You once presented uh, Songs of Praise. Um, um, yes. Uh, an episode on singleness and thinking about Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he commends singleness as a way yeah. that you can be undividedly yeah. devotional to the Lord. Indeed. Do you think that's something you've found to be true? Uh, well, of course, that is what is behind the celibacy of the priesthood. It's what's behind religious vocations when people become nuns or monks. It's about exactly that. Um, and it's quite true that if you're single, there's a whole raft of obligations which you never have to meet. But I must be perfectly honest about it. You know, I've poured most of my life into politics. So I'm not going to uh, you know, put some halo on my head and say, oh, look, I've been more used to God because I'm single. Because I don't think that's true. I've been far more used to politics. And if you know, one takes the line that I'm in politics because that's where God wanted me to be, then maybe through that sort of reasoning I've been more used to him for being single. But you know, no, I would never claim that. I said, somebody's single, somebody's married, doesn't matter. What's right for them is what matters. Do you think God did want you to be in politics? Well, I hope he did, because I've been there a very long time. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, moving on to your career, when did your interest in politics first start? You might not have even thought of it as a political thought. Oh, in my teens, um, early to mid-teens. Now, it's very difficult to explain to people now, because it's 30 years since the Berlin Wall came down. You know, we've forgotten. But in those immediate decades, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, immediately after the Second World War, the, the Cold War was really taking off in a big way. And for decades after the Second World War, there was a real contest for the future of the globe based on political philosophy. You know, it was communism versus capitalism. Um, and in we individual Western democracies, that was um, not communism versus capitalism, but socialism versus capitalism. But it was real socialism. It was red in tooth and claw. It wasn't Tony Blair's new Labour Party. And everybody knew which side of that very deep divide they were on. You knew it with your head, you knew it with your heart, you knew it with your very gut. You were on one side or the other. What you never heard people say in those days was, doesn't make any difference, you're all the same. Because they knew we were radically different. Uh, and therefore the young were engaged. Uh, and uh, I didn't like socialism at all. 
Um, and uh, I, that was what started it. Were your parents political? My father was not allowed to say too much because he was a civil servant. Uh, but in fact, he was a, a very, very convinced conservative. And uh, he was always very, very careful because in those days, the civil servants really were about never expressing a political preference. But he tells a story that one day after, uh, the night before, Labour had lost two or three by-elections, whatever it was, badly. I mean, really bad, terrible by-election results. And the next day, my father was going up the steps <coughs> of the Admiralty uh, and Dennis Healy, who was the Labour Defence Secretary, was coming down the steps. And my father said to him, as one did, good morning, Minister. And Healy said, yes, would it come for you? I expect it is. <laughs> so clearly he wasn't that clever at keeping his politics. What was it that made you decide you weren't just interested in politics, but you wanted to do it as a career? Oh, I decided that pretty early as well. Late teens, sixth form, sixth form. I thought I want to be an MP. I want to be a politician. Um... I think then I probably had all the wrong views about what a polit politician was. I was probably thinking of Churchill or somebody like that. Uh, but by the time I was in my early 20s at university, uh, that ambition had consolidated. And I knew exactly, I, I mean, I knew I wanted to be an MP. Uh, and I set out to spend my life, first of all, getting there and then being there. Why? Why did you want to be one? Well, as I've already said, you know, I was very politically engaged. I wanted to fight socialism, which was still rampant then. You know, rampant. Uh, and I also wanted to, and this is one of the big attractions of politics, is to try and solve problems which look insoluble. So you might say, oh, Northern Ireland or the pension system, or these days you might say Brexit. Uh, but um, also, this happens at very individual level. Constituents who come to you with problems that nobody else is sorting out. And you get that opportunity. So it was a combination of, of those motives. And you were an MP for 23 years? 23 long years, yes. Do you miss Parliament? No. I left at the right time. If I'd stayed longer, I would have become jaded. If I'd gone sooner, I would have missed it. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but when uh, my constituency said to me in 2007, did I want to stand again? There would have been three years of that Parliament and five years of the next eight years. I was quite happy to do four or five. I knew I didn't want to do eight. I knew I didn't. So I said no. Uh, and I never regretted it, so I got the point of exit right. There aren't days where you look at BBC Parliament and think, oh, I miss those corridors. You are joking. I look at BBC Parliament now and I think, oh. And, and of course, the terrible thing is um, that I've come out of retirement. Um, because everything is so bad at Westminster, because Parliament is such a shambles. It's why I've come out of retirement. So uh, far from thinking, oh, I do wish I was there, uh, what I'm thinking is, I've got to be there. And you mentioned that you're out of retirement now. How long was that gap where you thought you were retired, but then you thought, actually, I need to step back in? Oh, nine years. I mean, I retired in 2010. If you had said to me in February... Probably even March this year, if you'd said to me, Anne, you're going to re-enter politics. You're going to become a member of the European Parliament and you're, you, you're going to stand again for Westminster. I would have said to you, lie down and have an aspirin, dear. You know, it's not going to happen. But the frustration with the way that Britain became such a laughing stock and the utter shambles in Parliament, the uselessness of Theresa May, uh, all 
finally came to a head and I thought, right, I've got to go back in. And I was on a cruise at the time of the Norwegian fjords. And as I put it, I stood beside a fjord and I crossed a Rubicon. Uh, because it was standing beside that field, I thought, right, do it. And I rang up Nigel Farage. You're now part of the Brexit Party. Are you still a Conservative at heart or have you left I'm, it I'm a member of the Brexit Party. I mean, people always say to me, am I a Conservative? I say, no, 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 don't you get it? I'm a member of the Brexit Party. How hard was that to realign your political identity? Very. Uh, there's no doubt about that at all. Very hard. Um, of course, I had done it once by leaving Anglicanism for Catholicism, so I knew what crossing a big divide actually involved. Uh, but, um, I mean, I'm not comparing the importance of it, but the experience of it. Uh, and um, I knew that, I mean, I spent 55 years in the Conservative Party, for heaven's sake, 55 years. I had a lot of friends who I knew were going to be disappointed. Um, I knew that a lot of the people who'd spent night after night thumping the streets for me, you know, putting literature through doors and all the rest of it, canvassing in the rain, um, that they would probably feel let down. I knew all of that, but I also knew that it was the right thing to do. And the thing that really surprised me was the number of Conservatives, including MPs and councillors, who came up to me and said, well done. Would you ever go back to the party? I don't anticipate doing so. I mean, I am a member of the Brexit Party, and so long as there is a Brexit Party and it's got a, a function, mm. um, I can't see myself leaving it. Would you like to be a peer? Well, I was disappointed when I left the House of Commons that I wasn't made a member of the Lords, uh, and if the truth be known, I had really expected that I would be, because all the, the time, the service, the qualifications and everything else were there. Indeed, I don't know anybody else in a similar position to me who didn't go to the Lord. So I, I rather assumed it would happen. It didn't. And I was somewhat disappointed, but you know, I just moved on. I had other things to do. I suddenly had a showbiz career, which I wasn't anticipating. Uh, so I, suddenly I had other things to do. And I've never really, I, mean, I haven't thought about it now for years, unless somebody asks the question like you do now. I don't really think about it. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Cara Bentley and this is my profile interview with Anne Widdicombe. Coming up in part two in just a second, Anne talks about what upsets her most about the world. Hello and welcome back to part two of The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Cara Bentley and this is the show where we delve into a well-known Christian's life and testimony and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. For a free sample copy of the latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Anne Widdicombe. In this half, she speaks about how she was persuaded to do Big Brother, be in an opera, although she is tone deaf by her own admission, as well as the abortion discussion in Northern Ireland. What upsets you most about the world? I think unkindness, and there's an awful lot of it about. Um, not just the big serious stuff like wars, um, but social media, I think, has had a very, a very de um, detrimental effect on uh, on human nature, uh, and the uh, the bullying, the uh, dismissing of people as human beings, the terrible, terrible stuff that is said about them, the cruel things that people do, uh, I think is um, is pretty upsetting. So that's what upsets me most about the world. Is that something you've been on the receiving end of? Oh, well, yeah, come on. 
you know, if you're a politician, if you've been a politician for 23 years, it's like water off a duck's back. But ordinary Mr. and Mrs. blogs, and particularly Miss and Master blogs, when they're young, that's not like water off a duck's back. Mm. Your problem-solving nature, can you see a solution to that unkindness on social media? No. I think it's something that we're going to have to work through and grow out of, basically. Uh, and I think that will come. I, yes, you can have a bit more regulation, but in the end, you can't regulate human nature. It comes out. And these people once would have muttered in the corners of pubs and nobody would have heard them except the people who were with them at the time. But now you hit a button mm. and you send stuff around the world. And uh, I think eventually we'll come through. The, the human race tends to come through. We, we came through the nuclear age. You know, well, we've still got a nuclear age, but we came through the Cold War. Um, we came through the Second World War. We will come through horrible times. I mean, it really doesn't affect you if you get an abusive tweet. No, no, not at all. I get it all the time, my dear. I mean, I would be in a permanent faint if I got affected by it. I mean, I get it all the time. Mm. And when it comes to the future of politics and the church, somewhere where that tension is rife at the moment is in Northern Ireland, um, where abortion may well come into force very soon. What do you think the church there should be doing? Church should be opposing uh, the taking of life in the womb. I have no doubt about that at all. And the church should be opposing it very strongly and very unapologetically, which the Catholic Church does, uh, and uh, should be saying that all life is sacrosanct and that you wouldn't kill a child once it's born. Why would you kill it three days before in the womb? Because in this country now, we've got abortion up to birth. Uh, and uh, if a child... Uh, can be in a cot with all the resources of medical science being poured in to try and save its life and let it flourish uh, when it's 24 weeks gestation. Why is another child of that age actually taken from the womb and quite deliberately destroyed? You know, what's that about? Do you think religious politicians have done the same as you and kept up their strong voice on this issue? Or do you think they've melted well, into the background? Some have, some haven't. I mean... You know, David Alton certainly isn't quiet upon the subject. People like Edward Lee in the House of Commons, Andrew Salou, uh, other people. David Burroughs lost his seat, of course, but him. Uh, a lot of people um, do actually still stand up for, um, for what is right. And do you think the church are speaking out on this issue at an appropriate level at the moment? I think they could be a bit louder. I really think they could be a bit louder. But on the other hand, you know, we all saw those scenes of thousands of people outside Stormont and they're saying no, they didn't want it. Uh, and I really do think it's a sleight of hand that because they've got direct rule at the moment that we choose that moment to try and impose our own values uh, on a country that has got different values. How do you reconcile that tension between being a conservative and it's the individual's choice, but on this issue wanting you know the church to have a say over people who aren't Christian? Even a question of the church. Some of my best work for the pro-life movement was done when I was an agnostic. Uh, but yes, I do believe in the, uh, the right of the individual to flourish, and that includes the individual in the womb. That is a little human being in the womb. Uh, and it will grow and it will grow and it will become recognisable as a baby when it's born. But it's also a baby in the womb. Uh, and certainly when abortion is as late as it is at the moment uh, in this country, uh, that, to my mind, is just completely indefensible. What you wouldn't do to a child outside the womb, you shouldn't be doing in the womb just because you can't see it. And are there some issues where you think 
this is an individual's choice because I'm a conservative and I don't believe in a big state. But there are some issues where you clearly think the state should have a say in this. Well, the state, the reason I believe the state has a say in this is that it has a duty to the unborn child. You talk about the individual. Now, mother is an individual, but so is that child. There are two individuals involved. And that child in the womb has no voice at all unless it is Parliament's voice. It's the only voice it's got because the mother has decided for whatever reason uh, that she wants to end its life. The only defence it's got is going to come from Parliament and the law. Nowhere else. Uh, So uh, I don't see that as curtailing individual choice. I see it as protecting individual life. Do you think politics will ever change on this issue? The momentum seems to be in the opposite way to what you think. And I think it will get worse before it gets better. I have no doubt about that. I mean... uh, once when I was on the Health Select Committee and we were taking evidence on on abortion, there was a very telling contribution from a gynaecologist who had practised in this country, then gone for family reasons and practised in Australia uh, for 10, 15 years, I think, and then came back again to practise in this country. And she said that the big difference was that when she left for Australia, doctors in this country had to explain why it was that they did want to do abortions. By the time she came back, they had to explain why they didn't. And we were, of course, looking at the workings of the conscience clause. But that is that was the social change that had taken place. Something that was utterly repugnant had become uh, not only morally acceptable, but the norm. You know, the norm. You have to explain why you won't go with the norm. Uh, and I, I, I do think it will get worse before it gets better. Um, I'd love to, you know, give. Uh, listeners a great deal of hope and say oh it's okay you know the time is coming don't think the time is coming yet but it will do and I think that future generations will look back in horror at what we did and took utterly for granted and will say well how could they what do you say to those who say to you that your views are outdated say on abortion or same-sex marriage what do you say to them well it isn't I keep saying I'm sorry to keep repeating myself abortion is about life it's not about a view Uh, It's not a a view of the world. It's not a political principle. It's about life itself. It's about human life, taking it. So um, I don't think it can possibly ever be outdated to want to look after human life and particularly weak, vulnerable and completely undefended human life, which is what the child in the womb is. Uh, Same-sex marriage is a completely different issue. Um, I do believe very strongly in the church's teaching um, that all sex, not just homosexual sex, all sex, outside marriage, as defined by the church, uh, is wrong. And I keep saying that to people. I say, why do you think I'm picking on homosexuals? You know, half my friends uh, have actually lived in what we would call sin before marrying. You know, half the country doesn't even bother getting married. You know, now you don't say I'm anti them. You don't say I'm picking on them. Uh, so it is a real nonsense just to pick one very small group and to say, you know, oh, well, it's all about them. It isn't. It's about a much broader teaching. Mm. Changing gear slightly, but on the same theme. Uh, there are some views you've kept over time, like abortion and things like that. Um, but the last time you spoke to us, you said, I'd never do Big Brother. <laughs> and I've come under pressure occasionally to do so. I'd never do I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And I'd certainly never do Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> that's uh, two of the three by my count yes it is and it won't be the third because I've got terrible height phobia so I, I mean I'm just not cut out to do uh, to do the jungle uh, Big Brother I really never would have done 
um, my agent uh, rang me up and he said, Big Brother, and I said, don't want to hear any more. You know, don't want to hear any more. He said, just listen this time. Uh, and then he explained that they were celebrating 100 years of women's suffrage and they wanted to do a slightly different Big Brother. Indeed, at that time, they were wanting to call it Big Sister, uh, but the channel wouldn't have it. But that's what they wanted at the time that he rang me up. They wanted to call it Big Sister. Uh, and they wanted more serious people on it, uh, so like me and Rachel Johnson, so that they could have some proper debates around women. So I said, oh, yeah, 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 you know, Big Brother, proper debates. And his clinching argument was, well, look, they say it's going to be different. Um, if it's not, and this was his clinching argument, he said, Anne, you're not you know, in the jungle. You're in Elstree. You can walk out of the door. Uh, and... I really thought, and apparently so did the entire production team, as I learnt later, I really thought I'd walk out in the first week. I did not think I would last on Big Brother, but I did, and then my competitive instincts kicked in, uh, and I desperately wanted to survive, and I became the runner-up. So that was why I did Big Brother. Um, and I have to say, they half delivered on the promise, but only half. Did you, you know, enjoy the, it? No, enjoy is far too strong a word. No, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. I made some friends, but I wouldn't say I enjoyed Big Brother. Strictly was really very different. I mean, I'd always just thought, well, I'm totally incapable of doing Strictly, and there's all these elegant mortals cavorting round to dance with him. Not me. Uh, and I, I said no to them. They came to me every year, and I do mean every year without fail, from 2004 until 2009, and I said, no, 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 just go away. No, not doing it. Then two things happened. The first was I saw John Sargent doing it. I thought, oh, you can do this without being able to dance. You know, it really is possible. But the second and far more compelling factor was that I retired. Suddenly I no longer owed anybody any duty of time or dignity or anything like that. And I thought, I can do it this year. And again, again, I thought I'd be out in the first three weeks. I mean, there isn't an elimination in the first week. Uh, I thought I would probably be eliminated in the second or third week. I really thought that. Didn't quite work out that way either. And that must have been a bit more fun than Big Brother. Oh, it was huge fun. <laughs> I mean, that was why I did Strictly. I mean, I thought it might be fun. It turned out much more fun than I'd thought. Much more fun. And, of course, it worked wonderfully with the audience as well, who I thought would just sort of raise their eyebrows and say, oh, go home, dear. Uh, it didn't work like that at all. Still keep in touch with Anton? I'm still in touch with Anton. I'm still in touch with Craig, who is nothing like in private life, as rude and nasty as he is on, on Strictly. That's his role. He's Mr Hardman. It's nothing like that in private life. As I get on with them, and then from Big Brother, I still see Ashley James occasionally. I'm in touch with Amanda Barry from time to time. Uh, so uh, you make one or two friends on all these programmes, but only one or two, because on the whole, you know, you get together for the event and then you go back to your ordinary lives. You've done panto with Craig. I did pan two pantos with Craig, and then, of course, I did another four pantos without Craig. And most unexpectedly, never mind panto, I was actually on stage at the Royal Opera House. I was in an opera and I'm tone deaf. Can't, Did can't you sing? It sometimes. No, of course I didn't <laughs> sing. Of course I didn't sing. What was your role? It was a spoken role. Um, it was in Donizetti's Luffy du Crescimo and I was the Duchesse du Crackentour. And I was a very rude, autocratic old lady and they told me not much acting was required. <laughs> <laughs> You've done more showbiz and presenting than some actual people in broadcasting. <laughs> Did you ever consider that as a, a, a career? No, I always, as I say, always wanted to be a politician. When I retired, I enjoyed doing that. I thoroughly enjoyed making documentaries, which I was doing even before I retired. 
I thoroughly enjoyed making documentaries. Still do enjoy. They come far, uh, far fewer now, uh, but I still do enjoy them. Um, the little reality shows, things like living as a Victorian for six days, sometimes even more interesting than the big, you know, highly paid prime time shows. Uh, so there are lots of things I enjoy about it, but um, I, it, it's not a career. It's um, a retirement activity. What's your plan for retirement now? Is it distant? Well, I'm not retired at the no. moment. I'm, I'm back in politics, um, as I say reluctantly, but with utter conviction. Uh, I'm back in politics. I do not know how long I'm going to be an MEP for. Uh, as we sit here at the moment, um, and I talk to you at the moment, uh, we don't quite know what the future holds in terms of the exact date of leaving. I could be gone soon. I could be there this time next year. We do not know. Mm. As you say, we haven't had the vote on Johnson's deal yet. As much as you know about it, do you like the look of it? I hate the deal because one of the big red lines for the Brexit party was um, the supremacy of EU law. And this deal is a vast improvement on Theresa May's, and I, I don't deny that. But it still provides for, and it's there in black and white, the supremacy of EC law of EU law in determining any disputes that might arise out of the trade agreement or whatever. Now, with the rest of the world, if you make a trade agreement, you're equals, um, and you agree a, a means of arbitration. What you don't say is one side always prevails. That's more what you would do with a country that had just lost a war. You would say our law always prevails. And yet Boris is trying to sign us up to that. What do you think of his move a few weeks ago to expel 21 MPs? Oh, I think he was right. It was hugely treacherous, and I use that word advisedly. It's not just an exaggerated word. Because what were they doing? They were trying to take no deal off the table, which meant that the Prime Minister, who represents Britain, it meant that Britain was going to negotiations uh, with its major card removed, just taken away. And uh, that, to my mind, was deeply treacherous to do that. I mean, whatever people thought of the outcome they wanted, they should have backed Britain during the process of negotiation and made sure we could get as best a deal as possible for ourselves. Uh, and they undermined that. And, and I think that really is, I, as I say, I use the word deliberately, not rhetorically. I really think it is treacherous. When we come back to um, kindness, and we were talking about earlier, and lots of people have been speaking much more in the last six months about the language being used in the House of Commons and the use of words such as betrayal and traitor and things like that. Do you think language has got worse among politicians or well, is it just It depends tense? how carefully it's sought through. As I've just said, I do regard that particular action as treachery. I don't think everybody who voted Remain was a traitor. Not at all. You know, they had a, uh, they had a choice at the time. Um, so I think if the word is carefully applied, it's right. I mean, I do think that the Ben Act was a surrender act. It was saying, take our, our best ace card away from us. You know, do to us what you want, basically. We even, we didn't, the Ben Act even uh, made it possible for the EU to dictate how long any extension would be. You could say two years if it wanted to. Uh, totally, totally wrong and a surrender. So if the word is carefully, those words are carefully applied, that's fine. Um, if they're not carefully applied, I mean, you call out fascist or Nazi or something, that's wrong. That, that, that is undeniably wrong. And some Brexiteers will be voting for Johnson's deal, presumably, because they just, they just want out. Yeah. Do you sympathise with them? No, I don't sympathise with them, but I do understand it. 
because what the EU has done, and we all said this at the beginning, you know, when things started first going wrong, we all said, ah, what they're going to do is to try and just wear us down. And I think the whole nation's got Brexit fatigue, and I don't blame it. I think the whole nation is saying, just get it done, just get it done, just get it done, and I don't blame them. But am I sympathetic with simply swallowing this deal regardless of what it means? No, I'm not. But you're hoping not for an extension, I presume? I would like a clean break, because if there were to be a clean break, we've had three years to prepare for it, it's not going to be the big disaster, everybody says. If we had a clean break, we would then be negotiating as equals from a position of complete independence, and that would enable us to get a much, much better deal. Uh, and so that is what I would like, a clean break Brexit. And Barnier has said, isn't it? the next day it'll still be free trade. Yeah. Head of Calais. I mean, the French very rarely give us much comfort. Uh, and the head of Calais has said, no problem. When it comes to the future of this country more generally, maybe in a post-Brexit world, if there is such a thing, what would you like to see change in Britain? Maybe also spiritually? Well, first of all, I would like to see more free speech. Um, I One of the most regrettable trends over the last couple of decades, it's been going on a long time because it's been very gradual, has been the erosion of free speech, of people being able to take unpopular stands, being able to say what they think is a matter of conscience, uh, and it's all dressed up as hate and all the rest of it. Uh, and um, I have been extremely worried about the erosion of free speech. Universities know platforming people. Universities, you know, are supposed to be the very centre of analysis and discussion. Uh, and uh, that is something which I do hope will change. Now, you know, the, the suppression of free speech hasn't been the fault of being in the EU. Um, it's been a whole series of laws passed in this country and then widely, I believe, misinterpreted. Uh, and so I would very much like free speech to come back. And indeed, of course, that will help Christians because at the moment, you know, BA doesn't want you to wear a cross. Uh, you can be disciplined at work simply for saying, God bless you. You can be sacked at work for refusing to do things that go against your conscience, even though when you joined that particular job, um, there was nothing uh, that would have obliged you to do so. Uh, and I regard the reinstatement of free speech as a, a, a really big priority for Britain. But one thing did cheer me up, it's about the only thing this year that really cheered me up. But in April, I took time out of the campaign uh, to go to the Oxford Union and take part in a debate which was this house would no platform. And because students have been no flat platforming with such huge regularity recently, I thought, well, you know, we've lost this before we start. But we didn't. We won by hundreds of votes and we were accorded a standing ovation. And I thought, well, at least there is one place in the world, the Oxford Union, where people do still really value free speech. Because to me, you don't defeat an argument by suppressing it. All that does is drive it underground. You defeat an argument by debating it. You know, hear and destroy. Why do you think it's come to this? Why are people limiting free speech? It's been a gradual erosion. It's come about because um, people are very, very concerned that other people are never offended. Well, sorry. Nobody has a right to go through this life expecting never to be hurt, never to be insulted, never to be offended. I mean, look at the life of Christ. Mm. Yeah? Look at the average politician's life in this country, for that matter, to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. You know, I mean, of course you can't be like that. Uh, and uh, it is that which has gradually um, 
uh, prevailed. But there's also another agenda going on, uh, which is simply um, a liberal with a small L, uh, a liberal but actually deeply illiberal agenda of there's a view and that's right. And if you differ from that view, you know, you're in dire trouble. I mean, say you don't believe in gay marriage. Oh, that's hateful and you're homophobic. Well, nonsense. You just don't happen to believe that marriage can be redefined. Uh, and I know gay people who take exactly that same view, that marriage shouldn't have been redefined. Uh, so it is just this endless oppression. The number of people who say to me now, they say something and they say, oh, but you can't say that these days. And I think, well, you darn well ought to be able to say that these days. And I always point to my own childhood when I was born two years after the war and people had lost lives and limbs and family and houses to the Nazis. And yet, Oswald Mosley, Colin Jordan, they were allowed to hold their foul rallies uh, and the police only moved in if there was disorder. They were allowed to have their rallies because we believed in free speech. Then, as I was growing up, we had the Cold War. Big enemy, the communists. We tend to forget it now, but there were weapons lined up right along the borders of the Warsaw Pact countries, pointing straight at us. We tend to forget that, straight at us. And yet, you could stand for Parliament as a communist in this country, you wouldn't get in, but you can stand. You could stand on street corners and sell the Morning Star. You could proclaim yourself to be a communist. Uh, you could be a communist trade unionist and say that you were because we believed in free speech. Now, you think of the number of people who were hurt by both those things. People who were desperately hurt because they'd spent six years fighting uh, for something which now suddenly appears on their streets or in the hall down the road or something. How hurt they must have been. But we valued free speech more. And that is what is so important. Freedom is important. But I also think if you don't allow free expression, you drive things underground, and where you drive something dangerous underground, it can fester. And the obvious one is Holocaust denial. Uh, and I would much rather debate with a Holocaust denier and say you're talking absolute rot, you know, and, and debate the facts, the history, the detail, the evidence, to destroy that argument. Instead of which, they're no platformed, it gets pushed underground, and then you start people whispering behind their hands and saying, well, there must be something in it because they don't want anybody to hear. That's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. Free speech is a much better way of coping. How do we defend it? I actually think now the heavy hand of the law is probably required. The education minister, Joe Johnson, he did actually ensure that universities had to um, get away from no platforming and had to guarantee freedom of speech. I think we need to do the same thing in the country as a whole. We have to actually say uh, that free speech is protected by law. Uh, and that would change the debate. Now, normally, I don't like legislation, you know, if it moves legislate. Uh, I, I don't believe in that and never have. But I think we've come to such a pass with this that probably you do need the intervention of law uh, to get free speech back again. And once it is back and once people realise it hasn't got two horns and a tail because you can defeat what is wrong, um, then I think people will value it. Mm. And the spiritual state of the country, to use a short term, not that many people go to church. How do we no, solve that? No, not that many people go to church. Not that many people believe anymore. Uh, and indeed, knowledge of Christianity must be at an all-time low. I mean, there are people who don't know what happened on Good Friday. Uh, whereas you think when we were growing up, every child did scripture at school. Every child. It didn't matter whether you were a believer or not. You, you learned scripture. 
Uh, and uh, so, uh, certainly, um, but that is the fault of Christians now. You know, don't look to the law to sort that. Don't look to the government to sort that. That is the duty of Christians. We're supposed to spread the good news. Nobody else has got that responsibility. We have. And if we're so intimidated that we don't spread the good news, well, that's our fault. Do you have anyone from your MP days, that a, a constituent, whose dilemma or situation you remember more than other people's? Yes, I certainly do. There's one that really stands out in my mind. Um, one of my constituents was uh, imprisoned in Morocco. Um, by the time his wife came to see me, he'd been convicted, he'd been sentenced, and he'd lost his appeal. And he was doing nine years in a Moroccan jail for a crime that not even the Moroccans really believed he'd committed. And I thought, what am I supposed to do about this? Uh, I can't interfere in the course of justice in this country, never mind in somebody else's country. Uh, but anyway, really, just to convince the wife that I, that I would do what I could, I went through the embassies, etc., got what I expected to get, which was nowhere. So then, as the last throw of a dice that I was convinced was irretrievably loaded against me, I went out to Rabat, and I saw the King's Councillor, the Justice Minister, the Interior Minister, anybody else I could think of. And to cut a very long story short, the time came, about 18 months into that nine-year sentence, when I was able to phone up his wife and say, John's out, he's with the ambassador, he'll be home in 48 hours. And her reaction, when she finally absorbed what I was telling her, told me why it was that I'd become a Member of Parliament. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio and I'm Cara Bentley. That was my interview with Anne Widdicombe, which I'm sure you found just as interesting as I did. For more great interviews like this, check out Premier Christianity magazine, the publication that sponsors this show. For a free sample copy, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. That's all we've got time for for today, but we'll be back same time, same place next week with another great interview for you. Great interview for you. Great interview for you.